Welcome to part three of the Written by Rich Husick podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. I'm sure you're wondering why I'm sharing this full-length novel on this podcast for free. The reason is simple. I want you to hear it. As a writer, I want my books to reach as many readers as possible. I think of this podcast as a public library of my work. It's a way for people to discover my books without having to stumble across them in a bookstore or maybe have them recommended on Amazon. My hope is, as I build an audience, you will come back for more and share my books with your friends and family. Maybe take a few minutes to leave a review when you're done listening. That way, even more readers will be able to find me and tell their friends. Sure, I'd love for everyone to buy my books and have them on their shelves and coffee tables. But in the meantime, you can repay me by sharing the link to my podcast with as many people as you can. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So make sure to follow the authors Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 6 Diane Collins walked up the sloping streets toward her apartment building. An overcast sky obscured the full moon, visible only as a bright spot behind the clouds. The threat of rain was in the air, but the streets were still dry. Diane hurried toward her building, worried that she would be caught in the coming downpour before she made it there. She had left her umbrella at home that morning, a decision she was starting to regret. The Oakley Arms was an older building and lacked the modern amenities of other apartment complexes, but it was within walking distance of her paralegal job at a mid-sized law firm. She enjoyed the work, and knowing she wouldn't have to deal with traffic was a big plus. She had previously lived on the other side of town with her boyfriend, but when that relationship ended, she decided to move on. So many things in her life had improved when she and Jerry split, though they did remain friends. The outer door wasn't locked, but to get into the lobby, you had to either be buzzed in or use a key. Originally, the building had a doorman and a concierge, who accepted and sorted the mail, but now there was a bank of steel mailboxes. She paused to check the one assigned to her apartment. It was empty. Diane moved on to the inner door, unlocked it, and pushed it open. She waited for the outer door to close, and the lock to catch before she moved on. There had been times when she had seen strangers hanging around the front of the building, and the management frequently sent messages to the tenants reminding them not to allow strangers in or buzz in someone without verifying who they were. The elevators were ancient, noisy, and slow, but they were fairly reliable, especially compared to the old freight elevator she had used when she moved in. She was just grateful she didn't have to climb up ten flights of stairs after a long day. She did a lot of walking at work, Many of the records and filings were electronic these days, but she attended a lot of meetings and made frequent trips to the courthouse. She was alone on the elevator, which allowed her to kick off her shoes and wiggle her toes. Like most nights, she had eaten takeout at the office and was ready to just go to bed and fall asleep. The doors opened on her floor and Diane stepped out into the hallway, shoes in one hand, the key to her apartment at the ready in the other. The door across from her apartment opened as she approached. Rose Walton, Diane's insomniac octogenarian neighbor, poked her head out and smiled. Diane suspected that Rose kept her eye pressed against the peephole so she could run into Diane at moments like this. Oh, hello, dear. Working late again? Rose asked. Yes, Mrs. Walton. How was your day? Oh, you know, the usual. I watched my programs, wrote my letters, went to the market. While Rose spoke, Diane unlocked the door to her apartment and slowly opened it hoping it was a clear sign to Rose that she wanted to keep the conversation short. That's nice. I don't mean to be rude, but I really need to get to sleep. Long day, Diane said with a friendly smile. 
Is it raining yet? Rose asked. The TV has been saying that it was going to rain all day, but I haven't seen a drop yet. No, not yet, Diane answered. Bad things happen when it rains, Rose added with a note of foreboding. A flash of lightning lit up the hallway, followed shortly by a clap of thunder that was strong enough to shake the old building. Rose jumped, put a hand to her chest. Oh dear, I guess that answers my question. Good night, she said to Diane, and retreated into her apartment. Diane took a moment to look out the window at the end of the hallway. Drops of rain started to dot the glass. Then all of a sudden, there was a sheet of water sweeping down the pane, followed by more thunder and lightning. It gave Diane an odd chill, as if there was something out there besides the storm. The apartment was a mix of the old and the new. The classic moldings, tall ceilings, imposing iron radiators, and broad wooden-framed windows were juxtaposed with modern furnishings and a large flat-screen television. Diane tossed her coat and purse onto a nearby chair and let her shoes fall to the floor. She didn't have the energy to be tidy tonight. She flicked on the bathroom light. At some recent point in the building's history, the bathrooms were updated with modern fixtures, tubs, and vanities. It was one of the things that sold Diane on the apartment. She started the shower at the highest temperature so the room would fill with steam. She enjoyed the sauna-like experience it created. Her bedtime routine began with washing the modest makeup from her face and brushing her teeth before stripping out of her work clothes and stepping into the shower. Diane adjusted the temperature to just below scalding and let the water cascade over her. She hated the rain, but loved a hot shower. After a while, she turned the water off and wrapped herself with a large, soft towel. At the vanity, she reached for some lotion and began applying it to her arms and neck. She dabbed some on her cheeks, then wiped the mist from the mirror so she could see her face. She saw something moving behind her. No, not something. Someone. Standing in the tub was a man. He mouthed something to her. Diane spun around. Her foot hit a wet patch, and she lost her balance. As she fell, her head smacked against the toilet seat, and a moment later she faded to unconsciousness. Chapter 7 Jennifer and Emily entered the lobby of the hospital. Jennifer was carrying a large shopping bag and nudged her reluctant intern to approach the woman stationed at the reception desk. Are you visiting someone? The woman behind the circular station asked. Yes, Emily replied. Nathaniel Rainey. Oh, the policeman, the woman said. Are you family? Yes, Emily answered without thinking. The woman typed the name into her computer and found the room he was in. It's 508, dear. Niece? She asked. Excuse me? Are you his niece, dear? Oh, yes. Once removed. She added. Then took the visitor passes the woman offered and returned to Jennifer. Jennifer led Emily to the elevators. She pressed the up button and waited for the first car to arrive. They stepped inside and pushed the button for the fifth floor. Just as the doors were closing, an old couple shuffled up to the elevator. The man stuck his cane in between the doors, causing them to reopen. Sorry, this one's full, she told them, then pushed the close button. The couple was confused enough that the doors closed fully this time before they could react. Jennifer opened the shopping bag and handed Emily a candy striper apron and slid into a white lab coat. We have guest passes. Why do we have to dress up? Emily asked. He'll be more likely to talk if he thinks we're with the hospital. That sounds borderline unethical, Emily suggested. No, not at all, Jennifer insisted. The police use deception when interrogating suspects all the time. He'll totally understand. Totally, Emily echoed sarcastically. Jennifer loosened her hair and undid a few buttons on the blouse she wore under her white lab coat. 
Well, when you have a PhD, we can have philosophical discussions about the ethics of my research methods. Oh, right, Emily replied. Because I'd be a doctor of philosophy as well. Another reason I like you, Jennifer added. She slipped on a pair of black-rimmed glasses and pulled a clipboard out from the shopping bag. The elevator opened and they stepped out. Jennifer led her assistant confidently through the corridors, heading directly and purposefully toward room 505. Nate heard a knock at his hospital room door and looked up to find an attractive blonde doctor standing in the doorway. A girl in a pink and white striped smock stood just behind her, somewhat nervously looking up and down the corridor. Detective Rainey, she said as she walked into the room. I'm Dr. Day. How are you feeling today? Well, I have to say I'm feeling good today, Dr. Day. Ready to be on my way. Great, said the candy striper with a roll of her eyes. Now we're in a Dr. Seuss book. The comment made Jennifer and Nate laugh. Good to see a positive attitude. I hope I'm not interrupting your lunch, Jennifer said, noticing the tray in front of him. More like rescuing me from it, Nate said. He pushed the tray aside with his left hand and sat up straighter in the bed. Well, Jennifer continued, I was hoping to talk to you about your experience. She took a seat next to the bed and set the clipboard on her lap. Nate seemed confused. You mean my stay at the hospital? Not exactly. I'm more interested in your experience before you came to the hospital. She consulted something on her clipboard. It's my understanding that you were clinically dead in the ambulance, and then also while you were being operated on. Nate regarded Jennifer suspiciously. I was unconscious. I didn't experience anything. Jennifer leaned forward. I'm sure you've heard the stories about people who die and are brought back to life describing a bright light or momentary contact with relatives who have passed on. They're called near-death experiences. Nate recalled the dream he had while recovering from his surgery. The bright light, the shadowy figure. Sometimes, Jennifer continued, it's coupled with an out-of-body experience, a sensation of viewing yourself from a distance. Like when I could see the doctor opening my chest, thought Nate. Or visited fat guy and skinny guy at their hideout. Nate shook his head. No, nothing like that. I remember getting shot, then waking up here in this room. Nothing else. It may feel like a dream, she went on. You may not remember it right away, but it could come back to you. Has anything strange happened since you woke up? Any behaviors that seemed odd? Maybe something you weren't aware of at the time, but that now feels out of place. Nate remembered how Max and his mother had misheard the first words he said when he was extubated. He clearly remembered asking Max about the case but Max claimed he had said something about a rabbit eating eggs. My rabbit ate 22 Easter eggs, echoed in Nate's mind. That was strange, but he was reluctant to share that with this doctor sitting at his bedside. Who did you say sent you? Nate asked. The woman looked away for a second, then smiled. Dr. Cullen, she answered. You looked like you were going to say something just then, she pressed. Nate studied her for a moment, then looked at the candy striper, who seemed to be standing guard at the door. You're not with the hospital, are you? he asked. Jennifer sat back, smiled slyly. I never said that I was, she replied. He thought back over their conversation. That was certainly true. When he had questioned whether she was asking about his hospital stay in general, she had deflected and steered the conversation in another direction. What gave me away? she asked. Nate shrugged. A lot of little things. You don't have your name embroidered on your jacket like the other doctors in the hospital. You had to glance over to the whiteboard the nurses used to keep track of whose patient I am when I asked who had sent you. And the candy striper is acting more like a sentry than a volunteer. She never once asked if I wanted a magazine or whatever it is they do. Come to think of it, I don't think the volunteers I have seen wear those striped smocks. Secondhand store? 
You'd be surprised what you can find there, Jennifer answered, almost bragging. Who are you really? He asked. Oh, I'm Dr. Jennifer Day, just like I said. Not a medical doctor, though. Psychologist? He guessed. Parapsychologist. I didn't see that one coming. I teach anthropology at Cal State Hayward. The candy striper is my undergrad intern, Emily. Nice to meet you, Emily said. Please don't arrest me. She made me do it. I'm pretty sure there aren't any laws in the books for impersonating a candy striper, Nate assured her. He turned back to Jennifer. Sounds like you're a legitimate scientist. What's up with all the bright light and out-of-body questions? Why the interest in this, what did you call it? Near-death experiences. Doesn't seem very scientific, Nate noted. Well, as an anthropologist, I developed an interest in death. Nate raised an eyebrow. From an academic perspective, not causing it. Thanks for making that distinction. Every culture has their own mythology and beliefs centered around death and the afterlife. The idea that something of the person, the soul, for lack of a better word, continues on after we die is a universal idea. Those types of memes must come from somewhere. Well, if you're referring to memes in the Dawkins sense rather than the social media definition, you could make the case that such an idea was inevitable, as a way to control populations with the threat of punishment in an afterlife for misdeeds in this life, Nate countered. Jennifer sat back, as if his words had physically pushed her. I'm impressed. Not many policemen I've met are so well-read. A habit I picked up from my dad. I'd like to meet him sometime. Well, if you truly believe in an afterlife, then maybe you will. Jennifer realized the implication of his reply. I'm sorry for your loss. Fortunately, where he left off, my great-uncle took over. See, this is exactly why I want to interview you. First, you're a cop, so you're trained to observe and take note of things other people might miss. And second, you're a skeptic, so I can get an unfiltered account of what you saw. You're forgetting third. Nothing happened to me. No angels singing, no pearly gates, not even the other guy with his pitchfork and brimstone. Jennifer looked at him. Her lingering gaze made him uncomfortable. I thought so, she said. You did see something, but you're embarrassed to admit it. Or I saw nothing and I'm getting a little annoyed by the pesky pseudoscientist who sneaked into my room under false pretenses. Actually, Jennifer said in her defense, I didn't have any pretenses at all. And there is something you're not telling me. No, Nate protested. You should do a ride-along with me. What? Come with me on an investigation. Looks like you're not going to be chasing bad guys for a while. If I can show you something you can't explain with your skeptic's mind, you tell me what you saw. No, Nate repeated. Hmm, Jennifer said with a note of disappointment. You didn't seem like the kind of man who would turn down a challenge. Kangaroo, Emily said. Kangaroo? Nate asked. That's our code word for someone is coming, Jennifer explained. Kangaroo, 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 Emily repeated with more urgency. Before they could make a move to leave, Nurse Izzy entered the room. Jennifer tried to hide her face. Sorry to interrupt, Doctor. It's time for Nate's medication. Izzy brought Nate a glass of water and a collection of pills and a small paper cup. Everyone was silent while Nate took a sip of water, handed the glass back to Izzy, then took the pills and dumped them into his mouth and swallowed. He smiled and handed the empty cup to the nurse. Izzy became aware of the awkward silence. She turned to Jennifer, who did her best to avoid looking her in the eye. Then recognition and annoyance erased the smile on the nurse's face. Ms. Day, you're not allowed to be in here. It's Dr. Day, Jennifer corrected. I don't care if it's Pope Day. You know Dr. Cullen doesn't want you disturbing the patients. I'm not disturbing the patients. Tell her, detective, Jennifer begged of Nate. She's disturbing me, Nate said. 
Jennifer looked at him surprised. I thought we had something, Nate. Don't make me call security, warned Izzy. All right, we're going. She slipped her clipboard and glasses into the bag and started for the door. Before she left, she turned back to Nate. The offer still stands. I'd love the opportunity to open your eyes to other possibilities. No, thank you, said Nate. Bye. Ms. Day, Izzy said with a tone of impatience. Jennifer shook her head, then left the room, Emily close behind her. Izzy turned her attention back to Nate. She fluffed his pillow and gave his good shoulder a comforting squeeze. Sorry about that. She has a nasty habit of sneaking into the hospital and pestering the patients. She wasn't really a bother. Interesting woman. Do any of them ever have anything to tell her? You mean the whole near-death thing? She shrugs. People sometimes really want to believe, especially after a stay in the ICU. Being close to death makes you hope there's something more. What do you think? I'm Catholic. I know I'm going to hell, she said with a wink. Nate smiled. His mother was right. She was cute and a little more attentive than she needed to be. Izzy took a look at his lunch tray. Are you done with your lunch? Yeah, unless you have a Kobe slider with Asiago tucked somewhere in those scrubs. No cheeseburgers, she said with a flirtatious smile. I'll have someone pick up the tray. You should be getting out of here tomorrow. You really should try to eat more. I know, Nate said. Thank you. Izzy left the room, leaving Nate alone with his thoughts. He was sure that what he remembered was a dream. It had to be. There was no such thing as an afterlife or souls or ghosts. We got one shot at this life, and this was it, and he was determined to make the best of it. The doctors had been conservative in their assessment of his recovery. They were wary to promise him that he would be able to return to active duty, even after the reconstructive surgery that was scheduled for his shoulder. But they didn't know Nate. He would work as hard as he could to get his body back to 100%. He was born to be a cop, and one unlucky bullet wasn't going to stop him. Chapter 8 Diane sat at her desk, typing in changes marked up on a contract by a lawyer with a love of red ink and near-illegible handwriting. A dark purple bruise was visible above her right eye. She did her best to cover it with makeup and adjustment to her hairstyle, but she still had to deal with the well-meaning inquiries from her co-workers. She told them the truth, minus the part about seeing a ghost in her bathroom. It was obvious to her that the apparition of a young man she saw was a ghost. She was previously agnostic on the subject, but when she had first moved into the Oakley Arms, many of the tenants warned her that there were lost souls tied to the brutal incidents in the building's history. But everyone spoke highly of the ghost of longtime superintendent old Mr. Schotensack. They claimed he was the reason the elevators rarely broke down, despite their age. Except the old freight elevator, though that was apparently installed after he died. The spirit she saw in her bathroom, however, was not an old man. She only saw him for a moment before losing her footing and knocking herself unconscious. But she was certain he was young, perhaps in his twenties, and she had an impression that he was from a decade long before she was born. Diane was fortunate that she hit the side of her head instead of smashing her face into the toilet bowl. She woke with her hair matted in dry blood. She showered again, discovering that her injury was not serious enough to require medical attention, though it did necessitate a handful of ibuprofen. She looked at her bruised face in the mirror the next morning and decided to call in sick. The bruise was brightly colored, a deep purple at the center and various shades of red, blue, and yellow at the edges. That would have been enough to keep her from making an appearance, but a deep, blinding headache had set in as well. She spent the day lying on her couch with an ice pack on her face, the television on as a distraction. She returned to work the day after and found some co-workers skeptical of the explanation for her injury. A lot of them knew her ex, Jerry, and his history with the law. 
He'd never been arrested for anything violent, and she certainly never felt physically threatened by him. But regardless of the facts, many of them now looked at her injury wondering if it was the result of a reunion between the estranged couple. Diane didn't blame them. It was what she would have thought if a friend was in a similar situation. And it was oddly much easier to deal with than if she were to tell stories of seeing a ghost. It was well past midnight. Most of her co-workers had long since left. She only noticed because the cleaning crew had started vacuuming around her. She turned off her computer, locked the files in a drawer, and grabbed her coat. She smiled a goodbye to the woman cleaning the floor and, somewhat reluctantly, headed home. Diane stretched out the walk between work and her apartment, the dread growing in her as she approached the imposing edifice of her building. The night was clear, and that meant the homeless people who claimed this stretch of Pine Street were out, sleeping under tents and tarps. She paused at the outer doors to the building and looked up at the facade. The entrance was surrounded by a giant stone cornice and a few floors above it an enormous flagpole, with the stars and stripes dangling limply in the still night. Diane took a deep breath and pulled open the door. She checked her mailbox, then placed her key into the lock of the inner door, turned it, and put her hand on the handle to open it. A chill ran across her arm and down her back. It made her shudder. She peered through the glass of the door across the lobby to the elevators. The lobby was empty, but Diane thought she saw a shadow move across the floor, even though there was nothing around to cast it. She let go of the door, tossed her key into her purse, and pulled out her phone. She dialed the number and put it to her ear. It rang almost eight times before someone answered. Hi, Jilly. I'm really sorry to wake you. She listened for a moment. No, nothing like that. I was just wondering if I could crash on your couch tonight. The power's out at my apartment. Her concern changed to relief. Thank you. I'll be by in ten minutes. You're a lifesaver. Bye. Diane stuffed the phone back into her purse and stepped quickly across the mailbox foyer and out the main doors, moving briskly as she put the dread of returning to her haunted apartment behind her. Chapter 9 The elevator opened and Jennifer sidestepped around the men laden with boxes and furniture as they walked by her. She spotted Dave and Emily and walked up to them. What is going on? she asked. Apparently we're moving. Emily replied. Why? she asked. Orders from the dean, Dave answered. You never called him back, Emily scolded. I was going to, Jennifer said. Why didn't you stop them? Jennifer asked Dave. Because, he said, pointing at the phalanx of large, burly movers as his explanation. Well, I'll just have a word with Dean Patterson, Jennifer said. She pulled out her cell phone and noticed her voicemail already had several messages from her department head. Or maybe I'll just call him later. The talk is they're moving Crenshaw in, Dave mentioned. He's been here all of six months. I have tenure and classes to teach. Where am I supposed to do office hours? She asked. Maybe they're giving Crenshaw your classes, too, Emily guessed. They can't do that. It's the middle of the semester. I think Dean Patterson is punishing you, Dave suggested. All the ghost-busting stuff is coming back on him. He's trying to get you to fall in line. That's ridiculous. This is a university. It's supposed to be a place of academic inquiry, Dave shrugged. I guess he doesn't like the questions you're asking. Two movers exited the office carrying the poster of Harry Houdini. Careful with that, Jennifer warned. Where are you taking it? Another mover answered her question by taking a folded piece of paper from a back pocket and handing it to her. B-111, where's that? B is for basement, Emily told her. Oh, Jennifer said. Then, looking on the bright side... Well, at least it will be cool in the summer. Emily shook her head and went into the office to make sure her personal belongings didn't get crated up and carted away. Should I start looking for another advisor? Dave asked. Jennifer looked at him as if he was certifiably insane. 
Of course not. This is just a little setback. I'm going to land a grant that will set us up for the next 10 years. This would be the worst time for you to find someone else. Kind of feels the exact opposite of that. Dave, trust me. When have I ever let you down? Dave started to speak, but Jennifer cut him off. Come on, let's go check out our new digs, she suggested, then followed her poster of Houdini into the elevator. Dave hurried after her, reluctant to be left on his own. Chapter 10 Max pulled up to the curb on the quiet street in front of an old two-story bungalow. Nate looked out the passenger window at the home he hadn't seen in over a week. The house had once belonged to his great-uncle Bill and great-aunt Lillian. They never had children of their own, but judging from the size of the place, they had at one time at least hoped for a big family. Nate and his cousins had filled the extra rooms on weekends and extended summer stays, giving their parents a needed respite and Bill and Lillian an occasional house full of children. The way home values had skyrocketed over the last couple of decades, Nate could have never afforded such a residence on his detective salary. Even without a mortgage, the property taxes were straining his budget. But selling wasn't something he'd even consider while Uncle Bill was still alive. Besides, there was a lot of great family memories in the big old house. Nate's mother had insisted on keeping her own home, and even offered to let Nate have his old room. But he did not buy into his generation's practice of living with their parents. His father had instilled in him a sense of self-worth and self-respect that he carried with him. When Uncle Bill had to check in to an assisted living facility a few years back, he let Nate move in and take over the taxes and utilities. That allowed Nate to take care of some of his mother's expenses in addition to his own. Nate sat in the passenger seat staring out the window, his mind somewhere else. Max couldn't imagine how his partner felt, but he knew if anyone could come back from this, it was Nate. Thanks for sticking close to the speed limit, Nate said to Max. Max smiled. I promised Eleanor I'd get you home safely. You know, Nate said, it's kind of weird that you call my mother by her first name. I'm good with moms. Doesn't help for me to hear that. What? She's nice. I totally... Nate cut him off. Okay, let's stop this conversation right there. Thanks for the ride. No problem. I was going to say I'd totally like her to be my mom, but that would make us brothers, and I already have too many brothers. I should have called an Uber. Nate reached over with his good arm and tried to open the door. Wait, let me get that, Max said as he jumped out the driver's side and ran around to assist Nate. Nate somewhat resented the fact that he needed help, but when he got to his feet and felt momentarily dizzy, he realized that he was not going to be able to just pick up where he left off. It was going to take time, and how he was going to spend that time was what he needed to figure out. Max walked him up the path to the front door and collected the mail from the overflowing box affixed to the wall next to it. Nate managed to work the lock successfully with his left hand and then entered to an immaculately clean living room. Looks like the maid's been here, Max commented. I don't have a maid. Oh, so the whole neat freak thing extends all the way back to your crib. You know, it's not that hard to do, Max. You just put things away when you're done with them instead of leaving them in a pile on your desk. I like having everything within reach, Max said defensively. So, what can I do for you? Need any groceries? Bring some of the boys by later for poker? I draw the line at helping you out in the bathroom. I'm fine, Nate insisted. I'm just going to follow the doctor's advice and get some rest. You still plan on stopping by the office tomorrow? Why? You got some welcome back thing planned? Max was uncharacteristically silent. Nate smiled. Yeah, I'll be there. Great. Call me if you need anything. Thanks, Max. Really. You're a good partner. Aw, oh, shucks, Nate. You never told me that before. Still on the pain meds. I'll forget and deny I ever said it by tomorrow. Max laughed. Okay, boss. See you tomorrow. Wait. Did you bring it? Nate asked. There was a pause before the younger man answered. 
I was hoping you'd forget about it. I just want to get up to speed. I need something to do. Max nodded, understanding. It's in the car. I'll be right back. Thanks. Max nodded and dashed back out to the car. Nate walked slowly into the kitchen and opened the refrigerator. He took a mental inventory of its contents, noting the produce he'd have to replace after over a week in the hospital. He reached for a beer, then remembered he was still on medications and decided against the risk of mixing alcohol with whatever narcotics were keeping the pain in check. He instead grabbed a bottle of Perrier, managed to get it open with his left hand, and took it to the couch in the living room. Max popped in and tossed a thick file on the coffee table in front of Nate. Here you go, partner. The captain asks, you stole it from me while I was rescuing some orphans from a fire. Orphans, nice touch. Hey, I'm a hard-nosed cop with a heart of gold. Max pushed a fist out and Nate, who usually shied away from what he considered such a juvenile replacement for a handshake, bumped it with his own. I appreciate it, Nate said sincerely. Oh, that reminds me, I almost forgot. He reached into his pocket and pulled out Nate's watch. The robbers left this behind. They got your wallet and gun, but this fell out when the skinny guy dropped his bag. Nate took the watch and turned it over. On the back was a simple inscription. Welcome to the force, Uncle Bill. I appreciate you bringing this back. I owe you one. Don't think I'm not keeping track, Max said. He let himself out. Nate leaned over and opened the file. He flipped to the photos first. Most of them were evidence shots of shell casings and broken merchandise. Then there were a series of different angles on the pool of blood that Nate left behind. He closed the folder and pushed it away. There would be time for that later. He couldn't focus right now. He hadn't had a decent night's sleep since the shooting. On the mantle above the fireplace were several photos that helped anchor Nate. One was of him with his father when he was a teenager about a year before his dad passed away. There were no signs of the brain cancer that would take him all too early. His father was an engineer and had encouraged Nate to keep his eye on the burgeoning activity in Silicon Valley. His advice led to some strategic stock purchases. He had a nice little nest egg thanks to his father's foresight. Another was of his graduation from the police academy. His mother on one side, his great-uncle Bill on the other, wearing his old uniform from when he was on the force. Nate had always been drawn to law enforcement and believed he would have made his way to that career regardless of whether his grandfatherly great-uncle had been a policeman as well. But Uncle Bill's stories of his days on the force, the hard old days, as he used to call them, before the age of DNA and computers and even handheld radios had sealed the deal. When Bill retired from the force, he had hung out his shingle as a private eye for a while. Nate wondered if he might follow in those footsteps as well. Maybe going private was what he might need to do if he didn't recover from this injury. He tentatively lifted his right arm, wincing from the pain that shot from his shoulder up his neck to the base of his skull. Writing a desk was not in his character. He'd rather collect whatever disability benefits he'd accrued and strike out on his own than end up in the records room or some paper-pushing job. But that decision was a long way off. He had at least two surgeries to look forward to, according to his orthopedist, and at least six months before they'd know anything for sure. All he had to do was not make things worse. For now, that meant taking it easy. He grabbed the remote for the television and found a midday local news show. But after a few minutes of stories about the growing homeless problem, the need for new taxes to fight climate change, and the obligatory feel-good story, he fell asleep. Thank you for listening to Part 3 of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Written by Rich Hosick podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please leave a review on Amazon or Audible, and stay tuned for more chapters in this thrilling paranormal mystery in the coming weeks. Also, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or download these episodes on Audible. Give me a like or five stars and a quick review. 
and most importantly, share Near Death and my weekly audio short stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyandday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosek. Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when book two, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again and all the very best.